Well, on Wednesday, we started part one of this lesson. We called it God's visit to Abraham and Sarah. So if you are a note taker, and I hope that you are, go ahead and write that down as the title, God's visit to Abraham and Sarah. And the first part of the visit is found in verses 1 through 15. And we first saw that the unexpected guests appear. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, we explored a little bit. Did Abraham know who this was? Did he know that God was appearing to him? Well, think of olden days. If you were hanging out at the front of your tent trying to cool yourself and three total strangers showed up, what would probably be your reaction? Okay, what about today's world if three random people, three random men showed up at your door, what would be your reaction? All right, you'd probably be reaching for the gun. Uh, honey, grab the kids. You think, so they're just out there and these three men show up. Well, Abraham runs to them and he bows down to them. And we're not reading into the three men, all right? This isn't the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll look today's passage on why there were three of them. But it is the, the pre-incarnate Christ. This is a theophany. Jesus has come and has visited him. And what happens next is Abraham uh, brings him into his house. And he, he wants to, to wash his, their feet. And he wants to feed them. He is doing a good job of being a good host. God had not too long ago appeared and said, I'm going to be back. But he kind of disappeared in Genesis 17, and now God is back to visit with Abraham. So Abraham is very excited about what the Lord would say. We see in verses 7 through 15 that the unexpected guests speak, and what does he say? All right, it says in verse 9, where is Sarah, your wife? So said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, We'll have a son. And we're like, okay, we've heard this before. All the way since Genesis 12, we're talking about this son. We're talking about this promised nation. Well, the details now are getting more specific. Next year, she's going to have a son. And that's important. But it's also important what happens next in this passage. And we focused on this a lot. Verse 10, Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself. After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also. So on one hand, this is a normal reaction. Someone tells her that she's going to have a son. And she says, I, I'm too old to have a kid too old to have a kid, like literally, past childbearing. And my husband, he's too old. So how is this going to happen? But we know that when God promises, God makes good on his promise, this is clearly the Lord here, and he's saying this, so she should believe, she should trust. But this has been uh, 
two decades worth of waiting. And we see her doubt, and we know that she does repent of this, and she is called the woman of faith. She believes in Yahweh, believes in the promise and all of those things. But we also get an incredible glimpse into the character of God because he reads her mind, reads her thoughts. And you're like, well, I thought he didn't know where she was. He was just pointing that out. Where is Sarah, your wife? Well, he already knew where she was. He already knew what she was thinking. And here she is laughing at what God has promised to her. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? And and Abraham's probably like, wait, she did what? Because remember, he's not reading her mind. He's there with the visitors. Why'd she laugh? And the Lord said, why did Sarah laugh? Shall, sorry, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And when we are in sin, and clearly when we have been caught, we repent. We ask for forgiveness. We don't double down. Did you turn in that assignment? Oh, yeah, Mom, I turned in that assignment. Well, your teacher said you didn't. Well, she was lying. You're doubling down. Here she is doubling down on her sin. She denies it. I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. The Lord rebukes her, keeping in mind that he can read her mind and he can read her thoughts. And we we walked through this a long time. We spent most of our lesson um, analyzing that and thinking of it, right? So if you're an unbeliever, you are opposed to God. He is your enemy. And as your enemy, he knows your every thought, he knows your every move. He's all-powerful, almighty. You will never trick him, you will never fool him, you will never beat him, you will never thwart him. So your only response is to repent and believe in him. As the believer, we need to remember that our sin is always laid bare before the Lord. What you think about someone, what you watch in private, what you listen to in your earbuds, God is also there listening with you. We have become a very private nation, right? Families used to all huddle around the one TV that didn't even have a remote, so the youngest child was the remote. Hey, kid, push the button. All right, how do I know that? I'm the youngest child. Now, you all have your own little pads, your own little devices, and your own little earbuds, and we don't even know what you're watching or what you're doing, right? And so there's countless hours wasting time on stupid things like TikTok and and YouTube and all of this stuff. And there's this influence that's going on there. Well, Christian, you need to remember that the Lord is watching what you're watching. The Lord is seeing what you're seeing. He is hearing what you are hearing. And he is not pleased when we follow after immoral things. We need to repent of that. We need to trust him not like Sarah, we don't need to say, oh, maybe he didn't hear me or I didn't do that. We need to confess that sin and we know that God is gracious and faithful and loving to forgive that sin. Remy, you might want to give one of these, those sharp elbows. Yeah, a little harder. There we go. All right, we got it. We are living in light of the reality that the Lord knows all and that he sees all. But then we're also focusing on not doubting the promises of God. 
and you did a great job. I asked you a question. You actually interacted. All right? So we have the middle schoolers over there, and those eighth graders are about to come up in here. And when they're over there in the middle school, it's like, boom, yeah, yeah. So Wabi taught there on Wednesday. Yeah, Mr. Wabi, I'll answer that question. Oh, yeah, I want to answer that. Oh, oh, and we're having to beat them off with a stick. Okay, you can't answer the whole time. And then something magical happens. They walk inside the gym, and they go, I'm never going to answer a question again. Okay? But you actually answered the question, and you had good answers. There was good interaction. We talked about the promises of God. When God promises, he makes good on it, and we trust him. He promises eternal life. He promises that he will give you, uh, you know, delivery from temptation. He promises you that you don't have to be anxious, or you don't have to worry that he is in control, and that you can trust him. So we understand that he knows all, he sees all, and we understand that we need to trust him because his promises are good. Now let's look at the second part of this visit, and it's kind of an odd thing, right? You have this promise, this rebuke, and then we're going to hear about the judgment that is coming. Keeping in mind, how does God know to, chi- uh, to judge these people? He sees all. And he knows all, and he's going to act on that judgment. So we see, first of all, number one, Yahweh's inclusion of Abraham. Yahweh's inclusion of Abraham. Remember, Yahweh is the covenantal name of the Lord, special name between him and Israel. It is Y-H-W-H. And when you see the Lord in this chapter, in this section... It's really Yahweh. So we went ahead and we have supplied that there. Yahweh's inclusion of Abraham. You know, as a, as a Mavs fan, they talked a lot about, back in the day, Dirk's day, about the triangle of trust. And what they meant was, there was Rick Carlisle, who was the coach. There was Donnie Nelson, the GM. And there was Mark Cuban, the owner. And those three formed what they called the triangle of trust. And they included one another on the decisions. Do we trade this guy? Do we sign this guy? Do we cut this guy? And so they were included in those decisions, all right? Well, now Donnie and Rick Carlisle are gone, and it should have been the other part of the triangle that left, unfortunately, okay? So when it comes to youth leadership and the things that we do, I don't just sit around thinking, man, what do I want to do? We actually talk through as leaders, and we include each other in those discussions. So even our our reading plan that we have now Kind of the brainchild of that came out of a leaders meeting that we had. And we talked through those types of things as a leadership, okay? God here is speaking to the others that are with him about the need to include Abraham in the thought process of what is about to happen. Which is really cool. Because this is Jesus, two angels, and they say... We met this man, we want to include him in what we're doing. So we have a question in verses 16 and 17. The men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And this is, uh, we already saw Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Abraham and Lot, that they were too big and they couldn't live in the same land. And so Abraham said to Lot, you choose where to go and I'll go the other place. Well, Lot went to this area of Sodom 
and Gomorrah. And Abraham took the other one. But they're still close enough, right? The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? I love that word, hide. It's to cover. So when mom says, did you make your bed? Did you put up your laundry? And then you go, oh, I know my laundry's on my bed. So I'll kill two birds with one stone. I'll just take the cover and I'll put it over the top. And even though it's kind of lumpy bumpy, all right, well, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work with mom. She'll sniff that out. She'll find those things, right? But it's, this is the picture of sin. When God forgives us, it's like to us, he hides our sin from him. He covers it over. And what the Lord is saying, we don't want to cover this action from Abraham. This affects him as well. We want him in on this thought process. We're not going to hide it from him. It says, since Abraham, this is the reasoning why. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why do they want to include Abraham and not a bunch of other random people? It is through his line, it is through his descendants that the promised one is to come. They are to be a nation established in justice and righteousness, a beacon of light so that the other nations around them will see God through their holy living and come to them. For us as Christians, we are called to scatter. We are to go out into the world and to preach the good news. Israel was supposed to stay. The only one that we see called to go is who? Jonah, right? Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. And that's why he was like, we don't, we don't really do that. All right? So that kind of blew his mind. And he did a terrible job with that. And we all know that, right? Okay? But Israel was supposed to grow and was supposed to be a beacon of light. And they were strategically placed in a location where other nations had to travel through for different trade routes. So that the teachings of the Lord would be taught to these people as they travel to the promised land. Well, if they want this to happen, if God wants this to happen, Abraham has got to be part of this trust circle so that he can learn what justice and righteousness are. So that was the question. Now we have the answer. It says, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. This is very important. Abraham needs to understand what right and wrong is. He needs to understand justice. He needs to understand so that he can teach his children. And those children teach their children. And they teach their children. And then what do you have? You have a whole nation of fathers and mothers teaching and training their children. A whole nation committed to the Lord and to his word so that they may bring others to Yahweh. The word keep means to watch over or to take care of. 
How many of y'all have younger siblings? All right? There are times that you are asked to what? Babysit them, which isn't a good word, right? Because most of them are not babies. But you definitely don't sit on them unless things go sideways, and that's your only option, all right? But you watch over them. You're responsible for them. You're in charge of them for that time. Abraham and his descendants were to watch over the way of the Lord. And a little side note, we, we know the Disney and the Mandalorian, this is the way, all right? And so what that is, we understand, right? There is a thought process that the Mandalorians live by, right? There is a creed that they stick to. And that creed is a what? Works-based salvation, right? <laughs> Did you not? That's what most false religions are. Now, I'm not saying that the Mandalorian is a false religion or something like that. But it helps you kind of get into the mindset. And if you're in sin and you're an apostate, what do you do? Just hop in the water. Works-based thing. And then, whoop, everything's saved. You're good, right? The way is Yahweh's way, which is the promised seed, the, the Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. We are supposed to watch over this. This is a charge that carries down to us. The church, the church is the pillar of truth. The church loves the way. The church loves the word. We watch over it. We protect it. We guard it. We teach it. That's what Abraham is supposed to do here. And when it says the word righteousness, it's interesting because we have the English word righteous and the English word justice. Well, the, English, the Hebrew word righteous means justice. It means justice. It's the human judge or, or the king's thought process. It includes the elimination of anything breaking the peace and the preservation of good. 2 Samuel 8, 15, we see the same word. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. To us, this is an easy concept. The king is acting on behalf of Yahweh. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We know that it goes to Moses and then from Moses to Joshua, from Joshua to all of those judges. But then after the judges, it was Saul and then it was David. They are supposed to administer what is right, justice, righteousness, what is fair. And we say, yes, that's what government should be. But is that what government is? How many rotten, vicious, terrible kings have been out there? How many of them are all about me, myself, and I? How many of them are incredibly disgusting and vile? That's what the world governments are. But they were supposed to have a government and be a people that was truly built on justice. You know... I talked about that idea of how they were to be a beacon of light that the nations would draw to. How did Israel do with that? Most of the time, not very good. But we do have an example of that with the Queen of Sheba. Solomon was doing a lot of good things, 
All right, we know that he, he sinned in a, a various ways, egregious ways. Later in life, he repented of those. But the queen of Sheba in 2 Chronicles 9.8 said, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne as a king for the Lord your God, because your God loved Israel, establishing them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. And the Queen of Sheba, she's reiterated in the New Testament. She came to know the one true God because of the justice and the righteousness being administered in the kingdom of Israel. The word justice is a decision or a judgment. So you are to make the fair, the just, whatever is in line with God's truth, decision. And we see that same word in 2 Chronicles 9.8, justice and righteousness how does God interaction in this chapter help with this I think that's what we need to get back to all right so we kind of zoomed in on why Abraham was included we got that right now we need to think why is this Sodom and Gomorrah thing how does that teach Abraham about righteousness and justice God doesn't make decisions lightly God takes the truth, he takes the facts, he takes his character, he takes his law, and then he uses that to judge righteously. He has looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, and though he is a God of love, he is a God of grace, he is a God of mercy, this is a wicked and corrupt people who have not turned from their sin, and being compatible with his holiness and with his wrath, he will weigh the facts and he will make a decision and he will pour out his wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And he wants Abraham to look at that decision process. Why? Because Abraham is the patriarch of God's chosen people. And he wants God's chosen people to use that same thought process in making their decisions. In making their decisions. Let's see point number two. Yahweh's inspection of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yahweh's inspection of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we won't go too much into this because it's coming up soon. That we can hash out exactly what happened and how it happened. And Yahweh said in verse 20. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave. Now, let's pause for a moment. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that all have earned the wages of death because that's what sin is. The wages of sin is death. God could, would be just if he decided to destroy any sinner. At any time. But we have a special case where these, these two cities are so vile and so disgusting and so destructive that God must punish them and make an example out of them. In raining down fire and brimstone upon them, he has left an example for generations to come to live 
and to learn from. And we know one of the greatest sins of Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. That's why homosexuality is often called sodomy. Sodom, sodomy. But our society has what? Forgotten that. Forgotten that. That wasn't the only sin that was going on. But we know that this city was completely saturated with sexual immorality and with greed and with injustice. And that is the last step of decline and decay of a society is when they are given over to wanton pleasures because God has ingrained it in our heart that that is wrong and that is sinful. We take that and we suppress it and our heart is seared and we just want to please ourselves. I mean, you do understand in the United States of America, some people are lobbying on behalf that pedophilia should be legal. That child pornography should be acceptable. You do understand that's the, the world we're living in, right? That is the most gross, vile thing that we could possibly think of. Our world, our society right now, wants to call evil good and good evil. I mean, the whole transgender thing shouldn't even be an issue. But it just keeps pushing the limits. And our society keeps going down. Well, here, God is doing something about that with Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 21. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went to, uh, towards Sodom while Abraham was standing before the Lord. Now this is kind of cool. Pick. Now you realize why he brought some buddies with him. So the Lord came with two angels. The two angels are going to go scope things out. Now, does God need the angels to go scope things out? No, we already know that he, he, he already knows the answer. Okay, he's sovereign. God's not like, man, I wonder what's going to happen here. This kind of interesting one. It could go either way. He, he, he already knows, right? But he's given these cities the benefit of the doubt. He's also going to send them to rescue Lot. But he's also graciously doing it. Because if we heard, hey, their sin was great, so God just obliterated them. We'd be like, oh, man, that's kind of rough. No, no, no. When those men come and we see what's going on in the city, we're like, oh, yeah, bring it. <laughs> The, the, these people are awful. These people are wicked, but we get that gracious picture of it, all right? Thirdly, we see Yahweh's interaction with Abraham. So in our outline, we've seen Yahweh's inclusion of Abraham. He brings Abraham into the fold of this thought process and the decisions that are going on. Then we saw Yahweh's inspection of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, coming up in the next chapter, we're going to see what happens with that inspection. Now we see Yahweh's interaction with Abraham. Here it is. This is the teaching point. God tells Abraham, these people are wicked and gross. I am going to go find out. I'm going to go do my research. So if you're Abraham, and coming up, there is a situation that has happened... What is the first thing that you do in that situation? You do your research. You do your research. And the church practices as well. 
right? The, the scriptures teach that if there's an accusation against the elder, that it's not to be listened to unless there's what? There's multiple witnesses. But if there are multiple witnesses that come up uh, accusing an elder of something, the elders take that, they investigate that charge, and they vet what's going on here. How often do we hear something and we make a judgment? Oh, did you hear this one? Did you hear the one about Alfred? Heard he's a robot, right? Did you hear, oh, she said this? Oh, did you know this about him? And then we just, we already make our conclusion before we even research anything, right? God himself knows everything. And he gave Abraham the model. You hear something? You send two or more witnesses to go confirm. To go make sure that this is true and this is accurate. But then when you get that data, then you act on the data. Abraham here appeals to the character of God. He appeals to the character of God. When he hears that judgment is coming, he goes, that hurts him. First of all, he knows that Lot and his family are there, right? But Abraham, I feel, at this age, has a, a bigger heart to love. And he doesn't want these people, he doesn't want these people to die. He doesn't want these people to be destroyed. And, and we had the, this good question with the Q&A with the middle school. Someone asked the question, are we supposed to hate Satan? Are we supposed to hate unbelievers? And I'm like, look, I, we don't like Satan, but I'm not going to spend my time hating him. He's going to get what he has coming. And I definitely don't hate the unbelievers. So those vile, nasty people, the trolls online that are just trying to rile you up, or the people that are mocking you, we don't hate them. We feel sorry for them. We pray for them, knowing but for the grace of God, that would be who? Me. That would be you. These people are blinded. They are blinded. They are dead in their sins. They need us to love them, to confront them, to call them to repentance. So I'm not going to spend my time hating them. I need to understand them. I need to love them. And I need to live for them. But Abraham loves these people with a general love. And so in verse 23, he came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, this is the part I love that God's word is communicated here in a book. But we, 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 we can't get the tone. Could be saying, well, will you indeed sweep away? But I would not read it that way because God would rebuke him if he did. So we read it for what it says. Abraham is genuinely saying, okay, God, help me out. I'm trying to put the pieces together. Are, are you telling me that you're going to go ahead and destroy the righteous along with everybody else? Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous. Now, I don't know why he started with 50. I probably would have started with something a little bit lower. Maybe with 27 righteous or something like that. But he says, what if there are 50 righteous within the city? Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 who are in it? It's a good question. Abraham goes on and says, far be it from you to do such a thing. Well, why does Abraham say that? Abraham has seen love and care and guidance from Yahweh. He's experienced that. 
So he's trying to connect the dots here and compute this. It says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Now, we're getting a little bit more emphatic here. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And what is the answer to the question? Yes. And what Yahweh is showing him, he is dealing justly. He is. But to deal justly at times means that you're harsh. That there's wrath involved. That's what it means. It means making the tough decision. Sometimes in love, we let people run all over us. In love, we turn a blind eye. When we need to be firm, we need to rebuke, we need to confront. Earlier in the chapter, when the Lord rebuked Sarah, was he not being loving? Absolutely. Her heart and her mind and her attitude changes because the Lord lovingly rebuked her. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go out and start slaying the wicked, all right, raining down fire on them and stuff like that. This is a special occasion. This is the Lord dealing out his justice and retribution. I want you to go to Deuteronomy 1. There's a couple of places we're going to see this. Deuteronomy 1. And all too often, people equate the Old Testament God with wrath and vengeance and the New Testament God with love and grace. Well, he's the same God. He is both love and he is both wrath at the same time. Verse 16 says, Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. So after the exodus, remember Moses was trying to do all of this on his own where he was hearing these different cases. He was the ruler in those things. And so his father-in-law said, you need help. So he came up with like 70 elders and they were the judges and they were hearing these cases. But these judges are supposed to what? Exercise justice. Go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Does God ever make a mistake? Does God ever judge wrongly? No. We are supposed to take this model and we're supposed to execute and exercise righteousness and justice the best that we can. But we don't always know the full picture. We don't always know everything, but God knows everything. And his work is perfect and his deeds are always right. I want you to flip over to Luke 13. Let's pretend for a moment that if the righteous died in this situation, would that violate the justice of God? Going back to Abraham's question. If God decided to go ahead, if there were 50 righteous in that city, and God said, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to burn it all to the ground. Well, God doesn't do that. 
God's character of justice is he said, I will spare, right? So his character is loving and gracious and just, but we know that whatever happens, that God is always right and God is always just. What about if the righteous die in some other tragic event? Would that violate the justice of God? Well, Luke 13 kind of gives us a glimpse into that. Jesus is making a point here. He says, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus said to them, do you not suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there is an event that happened and people were punished. And so immediately the world's mindset is, well, they must have been terrible sinners. I wasn't punished. I must be okay. And we do the same thing here, right? Oh, that person has a nice house. God must love them. Or, hey, that person got cancer. Ooh, God must be upset with them. And his point here is all of you are sinners. They just received this terrible fate. Verse 4, do you suppose that the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? So we don't know all the details here. But there are 18 people and a tower fell. And it killed them. That they were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, we don't know if this 18 people included believers and unbelievers. We don't know, right? But it could. His point is, you can't always look at an event. Well, so let's say something terrible like 9-11. Do you think there were any Christians in the two towers on 9-11? I don't know, but there very well could have been. So if there are Christians and they die in that tragic event, does that mean that God is not just? No, it doesn't mean that he's not just. Well, how do I know that? Because he's always just. He's always just. And whatever he does, he always does perfectly. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, this is a judgment of sin. How does God satisfy his justice in this? He provides a way of escape for the righteous people. He's not going to judge the righteous people. And we know that by the next chapter. The negotiation with Abraham lets us know God's heart. But then God seeks the only few that were righteous. He seeks to get them out of there. And that's how his righteousness works. But good, Christian, God-fearing people die in car accidents. They die in plane crashes. They die because of cancer. Does that mean that God is not just? God is just. But here, the justice is not dying as a direct act of God's divine wrath and judgment upon them. So Abraham appeals to the character of God. That's a great way to go. All right? Great way to go. Now Abraham negotiates on behalf of the righteous. Abraham negotiates on behalf of the righteous. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. Ha! It worked. Abraham graciously and lovingly appealed to God the Father on behalf of his character. It worked. And Abraham replied, now behold, 
I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. So he's understanding who he is in light of who God is. And he, he said, um, suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. So this is a pretty awesome deal, okay? He said, will you spare the whole city if you find 50? He says, look, I'm going to spare the whole city if I find 50. And he goes, okay, what about 45? All right, 45. Verse 29, he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. So this is also the sanctifying grace that comes from true believers, right? If there are true believers there, then they are going to rescue the rest of the city because of their righteousness. He said, I will not do it on account of the 40. He, in, I think Abraham's getting a little greedy here. He said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and shall I speak? Suppose 30 are found there. Now, it sounds like Abraham's kind of being annoying. Would you do this with your parents? Hey, what time's bedtime? Bedtime's 9.30. Well, what about 9.45? Okay, 9.45. What about 10? Oh, 10. What about 10? Stop it, kid. Quit pushing your luck. He's doing it out of a love for these people, and he's being very reverent to God. Being very reverent. And imagine you're the go-between between these people and God's wrath. And so this is a foreshadowing of what Christ will do, right? God's wrath is going to come upon them. And Abraham is appealing to the character of God, trying to negotiate for these people being saved. He said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. It's getting down. Verse 31, and he said, now behold, I venture to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found. Now he's getting greedy, right? He just jumped down 10. Maybe he thought, you know, let's speed this up a little bit. He said, I'll not destroy it on the count of the 20. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and shall I speak only this once? Suppose 10 are found there. He said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. I love how God is in control, and God is in charge, and he's willing to listen to his servant. He's guiding Abraham through this. He's showing Abraham, this is how you respond to people. He could say, nope, I'm done. Get out of here. God's showing Abraham so that when Abraham is ruling his family and ruling this nation, this is how you do it. You listen and you interact. And he says, 10. God also knew that there were not 10 righteous people in that city. He, he knew that judgment was coming, but he's doing this for Abraham's behalf. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. So we don't know if he said 10 poof, and then he disappeared or if he said, peace out, I'll see you later. And then they walked away. But that's where we leave things off going into the next chapter. As we conclude this, there are three things that I want you to write down. One is to know, one is to understand, and one is to do. So know, understand, do. I want you to know God's plan for Israel. 
know God's plan for Israel. He chose Abraham to be a mighty nation through which the promised seed, Jesus, would come one day. But in doing that, Israel is to be a beacon of righteousness and justice. They're called to do that so that the nations would see that and come to faith in the one true God. It's easy for us to nitpick, but overall they failed at that. You are to be a light in a dark and dying world. How are you doing in that? Your light is shining through you so that others may see your good, good deeds and glorify your fathers in heaven. We look at Israel and say, man, you kind of stunk at that. Well, what about you in your life? I want you to know God's plan for Israel. Two, understand the character of God. Understand the character of God. I love the questions in the reading plan, not because they're easy to type. I said, what did you learn about God? You're reading to learn about God, people. And in learning about God, you're supposed to what? Want to be like God. He has all the power here. He has all the authority. And he's kind. And he's patient. And he's gracious. And he's seeking to teach. Seeking to teach. Understand the character of God. He is love. And you see that love, don't you? He's also wrath. He's all-knowing. So much we learn. Thirdly, the do. I got two separate ones. One is for the unbeliever and one is for the believer. For the unbeliever, I want you to understand that judgment is coming. Do know that judgment is coming. Sodom and Gomorrah, they were wicked as wicked could be. You know what, unbeliever? You are the exact same. The expression of your sinfulness might not be at the same level, but it is egregious. And we know from Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once. And after this comes judgment. Judgment day is coming for you, unbeliever. Now is the time. Today is the day. You are not guaranteed another breath. Don't look at Sodom and Gomorrah and say, ew, they're gross. Look at yourself and say, ooh, I'm gross, I'm vile, I'm wretched. And God will pour out his wrath upon me unless I repent and believe in his son Jesus. For the believer, I want you to have compassion for others. Do have compassion for others. We don't know everything that was going on with Abraham, but when he heard about God's judgment upon these people, he wanted to intervene as best as he could in a respectful, gracious manner. Now, God may not, 100% chance he will not show up at your door and give you special insight on judgment on someone. But he has given you the word, he's given you the truth of the gospel, and he's called you to go out to those friends to go out to those neighbors, to go out to those classmates, to go out to those co-workers. Those that are on the path to hell and intercede on their behalf by living the life and telling them about Jesus. If you look at Abraham and say, wow, good job, Abraham. What are you doing to save the sinner? Jesus died for them. You now take that message 
through your life, and through your words. When is the last time you told someone about Jesus? When is the last time you called someone to repent and believe in him? what we're here for. Israel lived a life, brought people, and shared God's word. We, the Great Commission, we go out into this world and we preach the good news so that God will save. Let's pray. Lord God, we do love you and thank you for the truth of your word. Such a, an impactful chapter. So much to learn about you and your, your goodness and your wrath. Pray that we would apply it, that we would trust you, that we would do what is right in your eyes and not in our own eyes. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.